Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used, be it stolen consciously or otherwise, for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Christy Dignan, welcome to Under the Influence. I've just read your biography and uh, this is Christy Dignan. And I saw the line, it was my dad who gave me my first love of music. So are we going to kick off with John McCormack? Yeah, well, that's that's where it all started off with me. You know, he's... Uh, he used to make the dinner on a Sunday. I used to never see my dad kind of he's an upholster in CAA, a coach trimmer. So he worked in overtime a lot and I used to see him because he'd be gone to work when I'd be getting up and he'd be in bed by the time he got back. So Sunday was the day we saw him and he used to do the dinner on Sunday and he'd put on his John McCormick album or Enrico Caruso. So I used to listen to all that stuff, you know, and to me to this day I still have a, a, a great fondness for it I love it you know but did that collide with your love of rock and roll or were you even listening to the rock and roll at the know, time I didn't even know what rock and roll was then right. you know to me I remember coming out singing uh, there was this song called uh, Your Tiny Hand Is Frozen and, oh, yeah. and I remember singing that and the, ba- the lads on the street would be singing kind of Slade songs or you know and I was saying no but you not hear this one you're looking at me like it's some sort of fucking space <laughs> What? We have to, you, they, were, they were looking at you how? Like some sort of space cadet, you know. <laughs> so. But at the same time, I mean, you did uh, music of Slade. When you were coming of age, it was music of Slade. And it was, I know there's another guy who I think is sorely underrated that you said most of your mates were singing the songs of and you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, well, Gilbert O'Sullivan. That was, I kind of mentioned that in the, in the book and the way it was kind of, the way it came out was as if I was not, in, uh, Gilbert to me was one of my first and to this day I still think he's one of the most underrated songwriters on, on earth, you know. And there's two, there's two artists well, three in the world, that when I listen to their music, I feel so inadequate, I want to stop, you know, and okay. Gilbert is one of them, you know. Okay, let's, why don't we kick out? would Gilbert be a good place to start? Absolutely, yeah. So, and n- n- don't have alone again, because that'll have us all crying before the show even gets started. So yeah. what do you want? Well, nothing rhymes, that's a cracker. It's great, it's a great, the lyrics again, this, yeah. these rolling rhymes and all that. Yeah, it's the way he fits lyrics in, you know, um, when I drink of my one for dinner, I've been a goodbye, I'm a your friend, I want uh, and if while in the course of my duty I perform an unfortunate would you varnish me so unbelievably so never again will I make that mistake like this feeling inside me could never deny me the right to be wrong if I choose and this pleasure I get from say winning and it's just as a sing song if I spoke those lyrics there's a sing song thing but he doesn't go there was a man with a cat who wore a black hat right. he, he puts right. like a, he has a thing with uh, shoes and about the yous in one of his songs like he has yous as in you people you know things like that he does things that I think anybody else of a lesser talent would sound absolutely cheesy down, but because he's so talented, you know, you don't the cheese doesn't come near it because cheese is so, so far from your, your your kind of frame of mind, you know. Okay, so I think we should give Gilbert a break because I mean, when you were rolling off those rhymes there, I was thinking if Bob Dylan had written that, it'd be regarded as a classic. Absolutely, but poor old yeah. Gilbert, who let's not forget is Irish and was one of the first Irish rock stars. So let's hear Gilbert O'Sullivan. Yeah, and like just before you go into the nothing rhymes, like he's trying to say that nothing's fitting together in the world and it's a bit confusing to him. And how he describes that is, you know, nothing old, nothing new, nothing ventured. Nothing, uh, nothing older than time. Nothing sweeter than rhymes. Nothing physically, recklessly, hopelessly, hopelessly blind. And it's nothing rhymed, you know. And it's like nothing's rhyming here. What's going right, on? Right, and right. For, like he's not saying, you know, there's a kid out there not eating food and that's not right. And there's a bloke out there with a job and that's not right. He's saying it now. It's very kind of, you know, symbolic way, and he does it beautifully, you know. Here you go, Gilbert. <laughs> that's a pretty good start, Christy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Christy Dignum, uh, you were mentioning there that, I mean, and not everybody I know would read uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan's lyrics in that sense, but I know that also the um, social 
echoes in Bob Dylan's work had a big impact yeah. on you. And your dad knew, I believe, used to talk about stuff like this. So yeah. it seemed right to you. you. You hooked in at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, One thing my dad gave me, you know, and I've mentioned this again in the, in, in the book. It's, I hate saying that because I feel like I'm plugging, you know. But anyway, <laughs> um, he, he, he had this vibe with the clergy, you know, and he gave us a healthy... Anti, anti, questioning. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, basically what happened was, he was kind of very um, poor as a kid, you know, and his, um, his mother used to give a shilling to the church collection every week, and he was saying there was times he wouldn't have money for food, but the church got that shilling, you know. And when his mother died, they were getting the priest to come round to, to give her the last rites or whatever, or the ninth, and uh, they hadn't got the half crown or whatever, and the priest wouldn't come. And I remember that that, that turned him off, kind okay. of, the clergy. Okay. And he was always telling us about how much land he owned as a kid growing up, you know. So, to me... You know, he gave it, and he also like he was he was very he was very conscious of injustices and stuff, and he, he gave us a healthy a healthy kind of way of looking and questioning things without just accepting them on face value, you know. So I was listening to music and loved music, and I remember hearing somebody saying there's two types of music, good and bad music. So to me, you know, a good Slade song is as good as a good John Carus, uh, John McCormick song or whatever, you know. So anyway. I thought most songs were about boy-girl kind of thing, you know. And then I, I listened to The Times Were Change and the Bob Dylan album. And to me, to hear the song, that, that the lyrics were as if not more important than the actual melody of the song was a complete revelation. It was like a watershed. And I thought, hold on, we can write, you can write here about the stuff that, that's frustrating and kind of angering me now as a, as a teenager. I can actually put that to music. It doesn't have to be about boy-girl and... Johnny met Mary at the dance hall, kind of thing, you know. So that was a huge, and that was that that day I I made the decision to, to dedicate myself to music, you know, and been you know writing songs. And or if Johnny met Mary at a dance, Johnny's black and Mary's white, yeah, and they have yeah. racial conflict. That's it, you know, and that's what Dylan did, you know. You know, it wasn't. It, it, I grew up with that whole thing, you know. If you wanted to be a scientist, you became a scientist. Then you know you reach kind of teenage years, and you realise that the social um, structure in this country determines where you're going to end up and stuff. So uh, Dylan kind of in his songs did that. He, you know, it was Mary might meet Johnny at the dance hall, as you say, but if Johnny doesn't have a BMW, Mary doesn't want to know anything yeah, about Johnny. Yeah. And that's where Dylan brought that extra edge into the songs. He kind of thought, you know, just because things happen doesn't mean that you're going to be a happy ending. That there's all sorts of kind of agendas and stuff. How serious, how serious an issue was? I know it's something you're very aware of, and even in relation to your book, you do not want to present a reductive or kind of insulting, uh, very uh, simple-minded view of working-class people. Yeah, no, I think I've met people that are academically very um, have achieved a lot academically, you know, and they're idiots, you know. And then I've met working-class people who perhaps didn't have a great academic education, but I'd consider them very, very, very clever, you know. And I think that whole, you know, Roddy Doyle to me is as successful as he is. To me, he, he really annoyed me. And, you know, I remember seeing the snapper and they're sitting at their dinner table and it's kind of, pass the F and salt, man, give us that, you know. Yeah, I do, yeah. And I yeah. hated that, perpetuating this this kind of working class, dullard kind of scumbag kind of myth. And he goes off then, you know, with his royalties and lives in this kind of, upper class or middle class thing and nothing against I'm not trying to be a class make this you know anti any class yeah. but you can't you can't perpetuate and annihilate one class and then move on and leave that class there to to live in that, that you know the, the the crap that you that's a result of what you've created and he, to me he made us he made working class people out to be idiots that you are so their vocabulary was so limited that you had to put an f and a b yeah. behind yeah. every second word now i use kind of that kind of language when i'm speaking but it's because that's where i was reared within that language and if i if i, if I want to sit down and not use it, i can but I wanted to say working class people don't have to be that, you know, that we're not all we're not all idiots, you know. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, some of us, because of the, the obstacles that we've had to overcome in, in our lives, have become very kind of streetwise and clever, you know. And to me, you know, that that's that that gives you a better survival chance, I think, than an academic education a lot of the time, you know. Yeah, well, I've had to, I've I've gone in print, and I'd agree with you about Roddy Doyle's work and uh, the theatre group called Passion Machine. I remember at the time all that stuff was going on. I was teaching at your area in yeah. Finglas and Scalida, and I read out some of the some of the sections of what he'd written yeah. to to the women and men there, and they found it just as insulting, terribly yeah. insulting and reductive. Well, well, I've I've been born and reared in in a working class area all my life, you know, and I have never sat in somebody's home that they could use that kind of language 
in their in their home and you know not get, a, not get boxed in the air man you wouldn't even get the first F word out and you'd get the, the sauce bottle across the skull you know <laughs> well that's that's almost perpetuating day, the same image I, don't, I haven't seen anyone get a sauce I mean, bottle across day, the skull this day I wouldn't be able to say that in front of me mother yeah, yeah. and out of respect I wouldn't I mean she wouldn't hit me now you know I mean she wouldn't chastise me now but I still out of respect would never speak like that in front of me mother you know so, so I think we should play and dedicate to Roddy Doyle maybe the times they are changing yeah yeah cracking song yeah they are changing, Roddy. You know what I effing mean, Roddy? <laughs> We're going down the right way now, aren't we? This is good. This is good stuff. No, I mean, what, what you got to remember is, right? Uh, we... Okay. Uh, now, just to give us, in terms of a third bit of music, do you want it to be Slade or Bowie or what will we head towards? I'd go for Bowie, yeah. Yeah, well, we go for Bowie because I know he... Uh, Slade. Actually, no, I'm going to pick up on something before we go into... So I've got these quotes. OK, Christy, we were talking there about kind of uh, being from a working-class background. There was a, there's a guy you mentioned in the book who you met when you were working in a bakery, and it was a revelation when he told you that Slade came from a working-class area. You thought that yeah. bands didn't. Yeah, I thought, well, I thought bands were kind of... Had, you went to college and, became, you know, studied bandness. You know, band How to wear shades. Yeah, studied bandology, you know, and... <laughs> You know, became there's another word very like bandology. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought, you know. So this guy said, you know, Slade had come from Wolverhampton, this place like Finglas in England, you know, and he kind of just want, you know, they loved music and got together. And I thought, what? So that's it's just a concept that I know yeah. it's obvious, but yeah. just that kind. I was only ten years of age at the time, you know. Yeah. But the concept of that was just it was mind blowing to me. And then I thought, from that moment on, I thought, right now I know kind of. It was another little bit of information that I needed to, 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 to fulfil what I wanted to do, you know. Um, but Mr Bowie didn't come from that kind of background. No, no. Well, you see. <laughs> so how did he come into the equation? Well, to me, you know, I would be as bad as... I've come, I've come across a lot of racism in this country. You know, I remember even working with a guy called Conor Goff a couple of years ago, Dignam and Goff. Yeah. And I remember coming over to rehearse with me one day and he was, kind of, he was saying, the only time you ever cross is the Liffey is to go to the airport, you know. And I got a lot of that kind of thing. And even when Aslan were kind of going mental at first, we used to go up to the Pink Elephant. We were kind of, we were like a curiosity, do you know what I mean? And then we, we made, we made ourselves curiouser and curiouser. But anyway, there was always that kind of racist kind of attitude, right? Now, if I am to dismiss an artist of the, the, the caliber of Bowie because of his social... Uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. place. I'd be just as racist as the people. But didn't you do that? There's a point in the book where some guy had a cricket jersey or something over his shoulder, and you said, "I'm not listening to him. It yeah. couldn't be good." Yeah. No. The point I'm making that that was Dan Jericho. The point I'm making there is that when you go to see a band, generally people they're looking for some they're, they're looking for some reason to dismiss the band so they don't have to think about it because thinking about the band and working out what they're about is work, right? Yeah. So if you see a band, you're looking for something to dismiss them and to me, that jacket, that, that reminded me of all these guys <laughs> who only crossed the Liffey to go to the airport. That's why they wore their rugby jumper over. So you were being racist in reverse? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but I'm right. <laughs> yeah, that's the difference. So listen, what Bowie track do you want to hear? Because Bowie yeah. was, was a huge revelation to you too. Yeah, well, I was going to go for Life on Mars because it's the first record I ever bought. So I think we stick with that. That's a cracking song. It you is, know? yes. And I used yeah. to love at the end of it, it kind of used to, tw at the end of the single, twiddled out and he'd pass me a glass of water, John, where the <laughs> tapes, you know, the, the tape hadn't been torn off and I used to wait till the very end to listen to that. With a glass of water in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> and hand it to the record player. And I used to try and sing to it. I could never sing to that song either because, you know, the so it's, it's yeah. this big scale in it, you know. Yeah, there is, yeah. David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, yeah, now, if I bring up the drug subject, I want to bring it up gently at the beginning. Yeah. We may get into it deeper later, but I don't want to go straight for the whole thing at the beginning, that's right? Cool. Yeah, that's okay, cool. so, uh, Christy, we can talk further later about uh, the drugs thing in your life, which has got a lot of press. Yeah. But we mentioned there, we were talking about uh, Slade, and Noddy Holder gave you a pretty kind of legitimate oh. lesson uh, yeah. in relation to drugs. It happened to me twice, right? I'll tell you first about the Bay City Rolls and then I'll tell you about Nadia Holder, right? And by the way, I have to tell the listeners, you had maybe had your first joint cannabis of 14. Yeah. So you were, you were a young boy starting. Yeah. So we were, we were over in um, Little Lane Rehearsal Studios and the Bay City Rollers, who had been a huge kind of teen band, and were now doing it like a, a reunion tour of all the ballrooms in Ireland, you know. And uh, 
I went to give the yeah, I was smoking a joint and one of the lads out base hours come over and said to me he'd spend four million pounds on drugs and he said, I'm telling you now, son, he says, You're gonna spend ninety percent of your time chasing drugs and you're just at ten percent doing them. He says, Get away from it now. He says, I spent four million pounds on drugs. He says, That's why I'm here now trying to get a few bob kind of thing. And I thought, Yeah, but you're a tick, yo, I know better, you know. <laughs> so that was the first little thing I got, you know. Then the next time we were in a place called the Columbia Hotel in London and it was this is around eighty eight and Aslan were kind of taking off and the Columbia is a real rock and roll. It's a hotel, rock and roll hotel, hotel I've been there. Hotel, yeah. <laughs> so Noddy was there with Dave Hill at the bar. this is after after the gig and uh, we were in there's kind of a load of bands all kind of drinking, you know, in different sections of the of the, the, the bar. And I, Tony was talking to Nadia and uh, Holder and Dave Hill and I walked over with a big joint being real and I don't want to talk out of that bud kind of thing. I said, left, left the behind me years ago, son, I advise you to do the same, like this, and I'm going, oh, man. So anyway, he started talking to him then, and he said that, uh, he said, do you ever notice, he says, you're in rehearsal, a load of spliff, you know, and he says, you're right, white or shade of pale, you know, or dark side of the moon, he says, you go in the next day and listen to it, and it's like two cats fighting, you know. <laughs> and when he said it to me, you know, it, it was, on, it was, that's the way it does happen, I've done it a hundred times, you know, yeah, yeah. where you write this piece of work, you know, all stoned, and you go in the next day and say, what? What were we thinking of yesterday? But t- for Tony out of man, from that day to this, he's never smoked a joint. You know, it didn't work on me because again, I thought, yeah, that was you, not me. Yeah, you know, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so street clever and wise yeah. here. We, we can talk more about that later. But you talk in the book, you kind of you talk about you got married relatively young. You, you saw yeah. your your partner Catherine when you were only a boy. Yeah. But you were married at 23. You had a house in the country. You had a relatively good paying job. There was still something eating at you, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, that you know, to me, any job I've ever had, and I've had hundreds of jobs, you know, but every job. I've ever had has only been biding time until the band thing kicked in yeah. or it was to pay for rehearsals and stuff like that you know so I'd worked in all these kind of I, wo- I remember working in Player Wills I worked on the St. Patrick going from Rosslare to La Harve I remember running out cleaning puke up after all the kids and all stuff like that but I finally got a job in the tel- in telecom Maryland as a tra- uh, telephone uh, install- uh, technician and to, to my old man that was like that was like getting the president of the USA gig, you know, because I do feel, and to this day I feel, in from where I came from, you know, if you kind of worked really hard and got, you know, the the uh, maximum amount of honours in your leaving cert, you could perhaps get a job in the Inland Revenue, you know, as a junior office clerk or something like that. And that was the height you could aspire to. But if you only went to intercert level, like the... the, the, the top there was you were even pulling the wool by getting a job in Telecom Ireland so I'd really achieved yeah. in my father's eyes yeah. by doing that now I can understand exactly where my old man was coming from because he didn't want me to have to do what he what the work he had to do kind of working 60 70 hour weeks you know so I got this job you know and um, my wife Catherine was working she's a, she's, a, she's a hairdresser so we are saving up to get it you know and we got this little cottage up in County Maid you know got married and stuff so I remember there was a band Calais Enfant, do you remember yeah, that band? Yeah. Right, well, we were playing those, do you remember the Ivy Rooms in Parnell Street? There was the gig upstairs and downstairs, and we were playing upstairs, and they were downstairs the same night, and our gig was jammed, like, say, 60 people, no, say 120 <laughs> people, and it was about 10 at their gig downstairs, and there was that little battle, there was always little jealousy battles going on then, you know. So, that was, say, Saturday, the following Monday, I opened the Herald, and on the f- when I opened the first page, at Les Enfants signed multi-million pound deal, biggest oh. since the Beatles and all. And I'm looking, here's this band that we kind of, would, I'd consider we were annihilate, you know. Yeah. And uh, arrived at rehearsal then, I said to the band, right, I says, this is it. I says, the fact that we all have jobs is robbing us of the hunger to succeed, you know. I says, I'm not giving up my job, you know. And I says, whoever's coming with me, you know, come with me. Now, at that time... We were like Dexys Midnight Runners. There was about 60 in the band, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, only four of, four of us kind of decided to leave. The rest wouldn't leave their jobs and that. But uh, my own man, to this day, kind of has a bit of a problem in me leaving that. Even though, you know, within a couple of years, we can fast forward and we can give hope to people out there who want to be, be rock stars. Whatever you did with the money later, is, that's another issue. But you were sitting in EMI under pictures of the Beatles and you did an £80,000 deal. Uh, no, Even if you're only on 80 quid a week. That's what it says in your book. No, I don't know where they got that. The, the oh. deal we did was like, it was a kind of six million pound deal that we signed with EMI. Sorry? God almighty, that says 80, 80 grand. I mean, I know, well, six million, that. that's pretty impressive now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to the first year they spent three quarters of a million pound on the band. But were you on 80 quid a week? Yeah, well, that, that's we did do that. But you see, there's a bit that was a bit of a kind of, to, to us that was a little bit, people were being hoodwinked. We were getting 80 pound a week wages, right? But we had a credit line in a couple of shops in town to buy clothes okay. with a credit line the pink elephant 
So we had we had all these kind of slates. So you could really turn your nose up on anyone who's turned their nose down at you. Yeah, but I think the eighty pound was only to roll up, you know, to snort our drugs or oh, that's something. What it, yeah, right. But like we, we didn't have to pay for anything, do you know what I mean? Wouldn't and get they, you far though on the rates that basically rollers were using eighty no, quid. No. No, it's, but even that, you see, it's like when, you, when you're in a band successful, stuff gets thrown at you as oh, well, yeah, yeah. you know. And it's, it's really ironic, you know. When you're on your arse and you need a kind of handout, a clothes shop wouldn't give you a pair of shorts, you know. But when you have a few bob and are successful, they give you free clothes, you know. It's, it's a yeah. weird irony yeah. there, you know. There is that question too, though, when you're in the rock business, people are throwing drugs at you left, right and centre. Yeah. Especially at that point, it was when Ireland took off too, oh, yeah. as, a, as a rock centre. But I want to play one of your own songs and I'm very happy to read in your book, you're not remotely humble or self-conscious when it comes to calling this is one of the best Irish rock singles yeah. ever made well I think it is I think it's a cracking song you know and to me the, the fact that it, it, you know if you listen to it today it's still a good track you know it's, I don't have to sit here and say well Joe you know you know the piano that's because pianos are killed back then I want you to under, I'm not having to qualify it and stuff to me it's still a cracking song would you not agree I absolutely I don't even you don't have to qualify it any further yeah. let listeners and let the nation decide yeah that's it yeah Excellent. This is good fun, isn't it? Because we're keeping yeah. it light. Yeah. While we're getting, we're getting yeah, stuff across. Stuff, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're listening to Under the Influence with Joe Jackson and Christy Dignam. Christy, uh, we have touched on the question of drugs, and there's another. There's always an issue, very often an issue between people who get hooked, and it has to do with self-esteem. Yeah. And you write in the book about how you had, despite all this acclaim and and this kind of that huge payment of eighty quid a week plus yeah. the pluses yeah but you've always had a problem with self esteem did yeah. drugs help oh, or did it hinder that absolutely you know and the, the self esteem thing like I'll give you an example I was being I had girls coming up to me in the street bawling their eyes out with kind of asked me for my autograph right and I used to write my autograph slow because I was waiting for the one day somebody's like wait you clown I don't want your autograph I was only winding you up kind of thing you know or I was always waiting for somebody to come up to me like say you or somebody like say George Bourne or somebody that way I would have respected that you know I'd allow for that comparison <laughs> but to come up to you and say listen you might be fooling all them but I have you so strictly you haven't a, you haven't a okay. clue so I always felt that kind of inadequacy thing right so when I took when I took uh, drugs it made me feel like the ace of spades you know and it made me feel you know cool and it, it kind of it, it, it blocked out all that kind of lack of confidence and stuff made me more confident you know and that if you're writing lyrics sometimes if you're confident about what you're writing you know it could be only a, a few little a few little tiny words in the in, in in writing the same thing in a confident way or an, un, an unconfident way and you know the the difference is is immense you know do you know what i'm saying like yeah, what we're talking yeah. about with gilbert there exactly that sort of thing there's a very thin line between great and not, and really crap you know and if you're really confident you can say something and if you're saying it with such conviction people believe it because they're afraid not to believe it in case it's like the emperor's new clothes they're afraid to say it's crap in case it is actually great do you understand what i'm saying yeah, so if you're saying it in a kind of apologetic a cap and hand way people will pick up on that but is this not kind of contradicting the story earlier where you said you were told and it's true that if you write when you're out of your skull it's going to be crap no well like that's where it's this is what i was going to say to you initially it did right. i i feel drugs initially did for about and i hate saying this because i have to it's very important that i, that I get to the end of the sentence because okay. i don't want to say it's a good thing but drugs for about a half an hour do make you feel do do all those things i thought i was the best husband in the world the best lover the best songwriter the best lead vocalist but that only lasts for a couple of a week you know and then it actually starts detracting because, you know, drugs actually kill the feeling, you know, so it's harder than to get in touch with the feeling, you know, and you go into this autopilot thing, you know, and it really robs, it, robs you of everything then, you know. They kill libido, libido too, don't they? They kill your sexual oh, drive. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. you, know, you write in the book at one point how you felt when you, I think maybe it was the Rutland Centre when you were cleaning up that you were getting back in touch yeah. with your sexual desires. Yeah. And a lot of rock people don't talk about that part of it. Yeah, because that doesn't feed into the rock exactly. and roll myth. That's it, you know. Like we're supposed to be bedding kind of sixteen boards a night, kind of thing, you know. And we're so bored, or even going for donkeys and dogs, you know. <laughs> now, to me, I remember those times when I hadn't had sex for two years, and we are the most successful band in the country, playing all over the world, you know. Yeah. Groupies thrown themselves at us, and I just had no interest because I just wanted to get back to my room to 
take some gear, you know. Yeah, but also it makes you less of a husband and less of a lover to your wife and all that stuff. Everything, everything. It robs you of everything. Like the ripple effect that, like drug people say, uh, you should legalise drugs because you're only harming yourself. You're not only harming yourself, you're harming everything that has any remote contact with you. Will be it, it'll be detrimental to, the, to that relationship, you know. And somebody, the closer you are to the addict, the the, the more the more um, profound the effect is going to be. So my wife has put up an absolute horror, to, you know, living with me during my addiction. You know. You said in the book, which I thought was interesting, that when your daughter Kira was born, it was like a defining moment. It gave you a greater high than any drug you'd ever yeah. tasted. But you still went back on the drugs soon afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I I've thought about that a lot, you know, and I think. You know, I bar see. I bar into. I, I I bar into a lot of the lawyers. You know, and like drugs are about feelings. Like I don't want to get into all the kind of psychology of it. But basically, you wake you wake up in the morning. I, I had a lot of sexual abuse and stuff when I was a kid, right? So I always had this kind of like gnawing hole in my stomach all my life, right? So I always felt that if there was a gang of us on the street, you only had to say, "How's it going? Can I play football?" To be brought into the gang I had to do three somersaults and say hello can I could play football before I'd be accepted I felt I had to do more do you understand I always felt outside right so I remember the first time I ever took heroin this hole disappeared right and I said to me I remember thinking when people think you're high on drugs and stone I didn't feel high or stoned I felt now I know what everybody wakes up like in the right. morning right. Know, I felt right. normal for the first time like I felt because I want to get this clear and I want to be careful too of what we're still, the, the messages we're sending out to yeah. the listeners uh, you felt not connected to your feelings because you had had this and you write about it in the book you were sexually abused by a guy and then a second guy the brother yeah. of somebody you went to yeah. talk about to think, the yeah. thing to so do you feel that you just and you felt strange you felt maybe and you're using the word that was used at the time and is still used in the wrong quarters you felt maybe I'm queer maybe I'm this maybe I'm the other yeah. so you were not connecting with your feelings absolutely so just no. the normal feelings that most of us would have had on the street yeah. talking to mates and all that you didn't feel exactly. like I can get that and right across the line not just as regards my sexual orientation but as regards everything so then when I took drugs I felt then I fitted and I had a confidence and I fitted in then and this hole was gone right so that was because I was so felt so bad about myself my esteem, my self esteem was so low and stuff but then again like the thing with the music the way it inspires music that only lasts for a couple of days right, then do you know right. what I'm saying well, but, but with Kira though did that moment not make you go I really got to clean up everything well now? I did make a huge effort you know but right. yeah, unfortunately yeah. then I started feeling inadequate as a father this is what I was going to say to you I started feeling I'll be a better father you know if I'm if I'm kind of my head is straight and, uh, right. do you know what I'm saying yeah, so, do, yeah. so it was all that kind of thing plus the thing is heroin is not a drug that you can pick up and mess around and then decide if I have a baby I better stop because it's an addictive drug and that's the the, the, the one thing that makes it different to every other drug out there because it's physically addictive you know you wake up in the morning your, your body's being racked with withdrawals and you have a choice of taking the drug to get rid of that so what you tell yourself is right what I'll do is I'll take it today sort all this shit out and I'll give it up tomorrow and then tomorrow something else kicks, it's another problem facing you. So I hit right, I'll take it today, sort that problem out, I'll give it up tomorrow. It's manana mentality, you know. You just yeah, keep, yeah. So, you know, and then you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. It's getting harder and harder and harder, you know. Then you start realising you're an asshole of a father and a husband. Then the guilt that that evokes is makes, you know, you think you're taking drugs to kill that, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah. this big, vicious, and it's a horror scene, you know, and it gets deeper and deeper, and you're getting lost. And there's also this thing as well, Joe, that when you're in active addiction like that, I remember going around, I remember sitting in the back of a Joe Maxi coming back from the airport, and I looked in their man's rearview mirror, and I got it right, because I seen this person, and I didn't realise it was me. I just seen this skeleton looking back in the thing. So I remember thinking after that that must be what you talk about with anorexia where people look in the mirror and see themselves as fine figured when they're like skeletons because I actually thought I looked fairly cool, you know, when I looked like... So the point I'm making is you think you've ever, everybody filled, nobody has a sus, you know what I mean? They're being very discreet and everybody's looking at you just fucking dying in their feet, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So, so listen, I mean, I was going to give you an option. There's a couple of songs I could play around this time because, I mean, I, we've talked a bit and I want to play some music. Play but some I want to violin because I'm being a bit violin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a couple of songs. I mean, there was a song for uh, Feeling in My Heart, which was for Catherine or, or, yeah. or something like Martin, which is about <coughs> drugs or Chasing Shadows. I'll leave it to you. Um, go for at it. At this point. 
Go for Feeling My Heart, the reason being, Martin is a drug song, which, you know... We've talked about yeah, that. Yeah, and that, that was actually about me, but I couldn't write a song called Christy, you know. And kind of the vibe with that song was, you know, the amount of times I'd sang in my home, and I'm not going to excuse today, I'm not going to use... And you almost knew by one o'clock you were going to okay. use it. So then I got to a point where I used to say, well, what's the point in the nine? I'm going to be using by one anyway, so I might as well use at nine in the morning. Yeah. So uh, the one about Catherine was, it was kind of, t- I'd come off the drugs and it was kind of my way of saying, listen, you know, thanks for sticking by me and this is what I think about you, you know. This is how I compare you to everything else that I've seen out there. Okay, Catherine. Christy, coming out of Catherine, Christy Dignam. Uh, we didn't mention it there, but um, to wrap up the, the exploration, though, though you can uh, getting off it isn't as easy as it's it's not something that happens overnight or even within a week. But it did lead to all the rock and roll dreams falling apart. Oh, absolutely! And it led to you being fired by the band. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like there was. I remember one of the first big confrontations we had with the band was. For I'll, I'll turn this off and light the smoke. Although you can't really... Have a smoke, we'll pause for Have a couple of drinks. But you know what to do? Leave it and I'll finish this stuff and then the next okay. question. Okay, all right. We'll have a stop, you know. Okay. I'm on a bit of a run now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what happened was, um, I was not turning up for rehearsals. Like, you'd wake up in the morning and you'd, you'd be in rehearsal at 11 o'clock, right? You're in withdrawals because you wake up every morning withdrawals. So you're going to go out and get your gear before you turn up for rehearsal. End of story, right? So we were we were record demoing in a place called Rope Walk for the second album. This is I'm leading to a point here. And uh, we were in Rope Walk Studios and I went down to this gaff on a Saturday morning to get a bit of gear on the way into the studio. I walked in the door and your man handed me like ten quarter grams and I'm looking through to pick out the biggest two and I heard like a key in the door, you know, and I said, Is that something next minute the door came in on the back of my head? Yeah. Old Bill on top you know, I was handcuffed with a gun to my head and I'd never even had my name taken by the police up to this, you know. So I'm on the floor and like the police, you know, they had us three of us handcuffed on the floor and I'm seeing my career gone, you know, sort of thing, you know. So then instead of arriving in at 11 into the studio, I'm arriving in at two o'clock, all this stuff haven't happened, you know. So the drummer out of Van Dalen, his brother is a guard. So he, he heard through the grapevine that, you know, I'd been taken in on this you know, raid and stuff like that. So the band knew about all this, which I didn't know. And again, I was in the mode of nobody has a clue what I'm doing here kind of thing. So we are, we are going off to Germany to do some TV shows. And I was kind of, what I would say, dabbling in heroin at the time, right? And the first day in Germany, I, I started feeling really ropey, like I had a flu coming on, you know? And it got worse and worse over the next day. And got a doctor and doctor examined. He says, there's nothing wrong with you. We can see nothing wrong with you, you know? So... We were flying back into Dublin Airport after two days, picking up a, a bus in, in Dublin Airport and going straight to Waterford to do a gig, right? So I rang a mate of mine to come down and bring me something down, you know. Now, this I didn't still didn't connect it to, to, to the way I felt. I just thought, I'm dying with this sickness, this fluey thing, and I wouldn't mind having a bit of gear, you know, smoke a bit of gear. So anyway, after the gig, there was a big autograph signing thing, like, you know, the band, and I said, look, I can't do it, I'm not feeling well. I went into the bedroom, right, to where my mate was, Walked out five minutes later, you know, somersaulting out, cartwheeling out the way. Wait, where's these autographs? Let me it. And the band are looking at me, what? So, you know, because the minute I got the gear into me, everything yeah, went yeah, right. Yeah. So, woke up the next morning, you know, we did the business, woke up the next morning, and two of the band had left. They'd gone back to Dublin and they weren't doing the gig. We were supposed to be, we were supposed to be playing in Cork that night or something, Clarny, I think it was. And uh, two of the band had gone back to Dublin saying, we're finished, you know, that we just had enough of it. And it was. I wasn't turning up, I wasn't writing the way I was writing, you know, my me, me artistic input was down to zilch, um, I was being laid all the time, my vocals were, you know, crap every second gig, I was, my voice was gone and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. but because I was so kind of lost in the, in the haze of the drugs thing, I wasn't seeing it the way they were seeing it, you know, and plus, you know, I was justifying it by saying, you know, I'm in a band, that's what, that's what I do, you know, what rockers do, you know. But that is a part of it that I don't think we could just skim over. I mean, there is this idea that Keith Richards has become the ultimate icon for so many yeah. rockers. And they do think, forgetting that Keith has his body cleaned out and his blood changed every yeah. few months in Switzerland or whatever it is, yeah. the idea of aspiring to be Keith Richards, there's a thousand other rock yeah. guitarists or singers who have died. Exactly. Now, I didn't think of it that way, you know. Like, I used to, I love Jim Morrison, Keith Richards, 
and Jimi Hendrix, people like that. But when I look at it now... <laughs> two out of three are dead. Two two, exactly, you know. Yeah. And it, like, it's like, to me, I remember somebody talking to me about Brendan Bean, you know, and we're talking in relation to another artist in Ireland that I don't want to really get into because it's not fair, but basically what they're saying was all these people sit at their dinner parties now and have these little anecdotes about Brendan Bean and what he did one day in McDade's. In the meantime, Brendan Bean's lying in a, in a grave, you know. Yeah. So you go out there and... While it's happening, nobody wants to be near you. But when you're dead, they're all kind of saying, oh, I used to love Creeps. Like, I know he was, but he was a mad feck. Yeah, oh, the gas man. But while they're actually, while you're living it, they're not talking like that about yeah, it. Yeah, it's like the shops who won't give you clothes if you're like, down here's something like, And this is something that really aggravated me. I don't know about Dave Fanny, what you think about him. I've no problem with him, really, right? But I've always got this real negative vibe off him because of my drug use, right? Because I used heroin. And I was down the country gigging there a while ago and he was going through the 100 best guitarists of all time. And he was talking about one particular guitarist and he was talking in an awe, you know, an awe kind of, awe-inspired kind of tones about this guy who got into this heroin phase, this flirtation with heroin, as if it was such a cool thing that he did. And I thought, hold on, Dave, how am I a wanker for doing it? And this guy is, you know, a hero for doing it. You know, yeah, So you yeah, get a lot of yeah, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know? Listen, well, I want to point out that the music, the songs we played, you said your creative impulse when all was but down to zilch. Yeah. Uh, but that song I played came from later, didn't it? The, the, which, which song? The, the one for Catherine. Yeah, well, I mean, see, there were, there were periods within all that that I would stop for periods of time, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, like we talked about, the sex drive thing, when you do stop, your creative force comes back with a vengeance. And because you haven't been using it, it's kind of... You know, look, what I love writing. So when it comes back and it's there, you're kind of nearly ringing it. You know what I mean? Ringing every drop out of it. So play, let's get you something from uh, Crazy World or Goodbye Charlie. Something that yeah. might, gives us some charge of this. What do you think would suit what we're hearing? Um, crazy. I, I can't even remember what's on the Madness album. Um, so no say Crazy World because that's, right. you know, that's the old... There's a song on that um, called uh, um, uh, Unforgiven. Okay. Why this? Because it's kind of, it's about being unforgiven, you know. It's about, you know, going out there and, like, people sometimes treat you in a way as if you've done it personally to offend them. You've done the, made the mistakes you've made in your life. And I had no, I wasn't considered anybody. It was almost, it was almost, it was absolutely selfish the way yeah. I was using my drugs. Yeah. But people actually think that it wasn't because I wanted to kill, you know, me, 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 me feelings of self-worth or anything like that. It was because I wanted to piss them off in particular that I took drugs and stuff. So this one is kind of about that. That's very self-centred of them. But anyway, here's Unforgiven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take the break for the smoke? Yeah. We've only, it's, it's gone great. I think it's great yeah. radio. Don't you? Yeah. That, and then I'll go on to the regular cassette and I can take off these fucking cans. Oh, the producer just heard that. Sorry, Aiden. I love wearing headphones. Yeah, I'm even wearing a pair to make them feel better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We've split them in half. We've two heads fucking stuck in between the headphones here. Okay. Uh, what did we play? What was the last song? Unforgiven. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're with Joe Jackson and Christy Dignam on Under the Influence. Uh, that was a song called Unforgiven. Oh. Uh, Christy, we have a lot of uh, family listeners listening to this show. Mm -hmm. And there's one part of your book that I really found was, if it had been me, I would have got deeply angry. And um, would you like to address the suggestion of the story that wounded nearly everybody in your entire family? It went yeah. out in a particular paper and yeah. it suggested that you were a dealer of heroin yeah. and that you were doing heroin in, I can't remember the image, a damp room with poor Kira sitting there beside yeah. you. Oh man, I'll tell you the story there, right? The raid I just spoke about a few minutes ago, right? The band found out about it and the big row happened and the band split up, right? So the papers were coming on to me that particular paper was ringing me am I allowed to say who they were or not? Yeah. right it's a guy called Eugene Masterson from the Daily Star right and he was ringing me and saying listen the press release is saying it's musical and personal differences we heard it's over drugs what's the buzz right so I got on to me, me lawyer right in London and I said what they say do here and he said look if you deny it's about drugs and you have evidence that you have been taking drugs and that's why the band split up they'll destroy you so we'll go for a damage limitation kind of buzz right so it's just be honest with them so I went out and I gave an interview to the star and I said look basically you know I did have it I was dabbling with heroin and it did cause a lot of problems in the band but that's in the past and this particular split wasn't actually about that it was about you know we just weren't getting on anymore kind of thing but I'm, I did have a drug thing problem you know we're sorted now kind of thing right so that was that so about three days later at five o'clock in the morning I had a load of 
journalists came up to me door in Finglas, right? And they're all cameras and all. It was all, anyway, so they're saying that they had they had evidence that I was a drug financing drugs and you know all this carry on. So I just it was so it was so outrageous that I wasn't even I didn't even answer them. You know, I just shut it on my face. So anyway, two days later, I walked across to this shop across the road where I lived and when I used to walk into this shop the local women and that used to be out because I was kind of the local celebrity hey Christy kind of thing you know and this day I walked in and it was like Osama Bin Laden had walked in you know and I'm going what's the vibe here you know and I looked on the floor Joe and you know the papers would be all piled and the headlines of the Daily Star was Christy sold heroin and Pope was dead headlines you know like three inch letters and I, I couldn't believe it, right? So it was a five-page article altogether. And I remember one particular thing, what you said about Kier, that stuck out in my mind was, in italics was, he blew rings of heroin smoke into his two-year-old daughter's face and said, this is great shit, man. Which is even, it's like hippie talk. They, like People don't speak like that. Now, I have never, ever, ever brought drugs near me, family, do you know? But... You know, That's the point worth mentioning because for a lot of years Catherine didn't know even. No, no. Like I, I smoked spliff, right? And Catherine thought that that's why my eyes were glazy and stuff like that. She hadn't got a clue, and like it wasn't something that you see now. That, that now there's people like me and of my generation who who people can look at to see you know the effects that heroin had. But I was one of the first. Uh, batch of heroin addicts in this country so we didn't have peers to look at and say that's the way we're going to end up if you don't snap out of this or that's what you look like if you're a heroin addict do you understand what I'm saying yeah. so Catherine had nothing to, to compare me against there was nobody before me so she thought I was just going to smoke because I did smoke an awful lot of hash and stuff you know so the one thing you know it horrified me that they would say this but the basic gist of the story was that I was financing heroin in this country on me £80 a week because obviously the star saw I'm in this big rock band I'm earning millions and I'm, I was on £80 a week at the time as we discussed earlier on you know so apparently what they'd done like we, I went to court and I sued him and I won my case and all that carry on I remember even the day in the court we walked into the court and they stood up and their, their solicitor read out their kind of opening statement. And I remember sitting there and it took a second or two for me to suss this, he was reading out about this self-confessed heroin addict scumbag and I remember thinking if I was neutral sitting here I'd pick out a gun and blow the head off the person he's describing what he was describing me right so he only had this opening statement done when one of his counsels stood up another one of the counsels his their counsel stood up and asked for a recess so he went out and he settled the thing on the court steps right now the thing I, I I wanted an apology and a retraction in the paper that's all I didn't give a shit about the money end of it kind of thing so that that's eventually what we got. But apparently what I heard later on, what he did was, he went up to Ballymun, which was my kind of scoring ground at that time, and went around asking other addicts, listen, uh, it's Christy Dignan. So some head just... All right. You know, All so right. anyway, they ran with it. But it was absolutely... i never forget To this day, even thinking about it now, saying shudders up. Because even, I mean, you describe a moment in the book which must have been horrific for her too. I think it was Catherine's mother. They ended up knocking on her door, was but, it? Yeah, see, so at the time they came to my house at five, they, they, just prior to that, they'd gone into Catherine's mother's house, who was like in her 80s, so she'd been in her 70s then, and they pulled out a badge and flashed it, and she thought it was police, because she didn't know, but listen, we need to talk to Christy, flashing this badge at f- kind of four o'clock in the morning, but I heard her. And, she, you know, she thought the police... So she thought she can't lie to the police, told them where I live. So they arrived at my gaff, say, quarter to five in the morning. But you can imagine, like, I remember for three days, I used to have to go out my back door, run across back garden and over a wall to get out of my house because you were sitting outside the door with cameras and stuff, you know? It's a great moral lesson, though, not, not, to, not to get as deep or not to get into drugs. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Not you to know. get into heroin at that level. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier about smoking uh, joints, you know, and I, I saw the, the figures recently to say that a huge majority of people in Ireland now, particularly of the 60s, 70s, maybe 80s generation, so that's not an issue or a deal. But yeah. we're talking about something different when we talk yeah. about the world of heroin. Yeah, well, I, I think... Heroin is in a different category. I think drugs, drugs, you know, the word drugs should be should be all drugs. I think heroin should be put in a separate car- yeah. category. It shouldn't even be called drugs. It's something beyond drugs, you know. It's absolutely horrifying. I can't think about it this way, Joe, right? I mentioned this thing in the book, right? I'm in Bray, seaside, on a Sunday afternoon, in a toilet, a manky jack's, with a syringe in my hand, putting her into the gear into my jugger, my jugular vein, right? 
and there's blood dribbling down my neck in this dimly lit bathroom, smell of urine all over the place. And Sunday afternoon, with a, a, a syringe full of heroin and blood, trying to get into my jugular vein. So that's where taking the smoke of heroin to help me write a song brought me. That's where it started, and that's where it, you know it went. It's you know it's. I remember two women walked into the jacks. I went. What happened was the, like the vlog jacks hadn't got a mirror, and they needed a mirror to kind of do this. And because in America they were everything backwards, it was, so these two old ladies walked in, and he looked at me with absolute horror, right? And I remember looking at them thinking, you don't think he's all over the acting a bit, don't you know? And so I honestly believed you were overreacting. It was probably the most horrifying thing they'd ever yeah, seen in their life. Yeah, yeah. But that, you know, I was so out there at the time, you know. And that, you know, to me, heroin is, I can't even begin to describe how how dangerous and how evil it is, you know. It's like. That image to me was is pretty strong, and then I think that yeah. would kind of chill anybody. Yeah. If you think of it, if, if, you, if you want to think of it this way, if you look at a Dracula film, the way a vampire has to get up every morning every evening and go out and suck blood to survive. A heroin addict is almost like that. I remember thinking whoever wrote Bram Stoker probably had some idea of what addiction was about because to me that's very similar, you know. And here's something else, another way to look at it. If you ever in a dream and you're being killed or whatever and you wake up and you go, thanks be to that was a nightmare, thanks be to God, right? Well, if you can imagine, I'm in, when I'm asleep and I'm dreaming in active addiction, I'm running through the kind of daisy fields, kind of being wherever, when I wake up, the nightmare begins. All right, okay. And that is horrifying. You know, it's the, if you can imagine the reverse of what a nightmare is, your life is a nightmare, you know. It's hardly the rock and roll dream, is it? No, it's not, you know. And I remember, like, even being in the Rutland Centre, sweeping up to Jack's, because you had these little chores to do, you know. And, I, like, two weeks prior to that, I was in the Roxy in Los Angeles, snorting off, you know, uh, you know, glass tables with a gold snorting tube, you know, yeah, yeah. and here two weeks later I'm, I'm cleaning the, the toilets in a, in, a, in a drug clinic, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, I, I want to get people to go out and buy the book because there's a lot of great stuff in it. I mean, you did, you, 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 you nearly died at one point, you had a contract put on you. There was yeah. a threat that the people were going to kidnap your daughter yeah. and you've had to go back over all this stuff to write the book. Did that rip your heart kind of out? Yeah, it was very, very hard. Like when I started, when I was going to do this, I, I kind of, I wanted to kind of get past, I'd arrived at a point in my life that I wanted to kind of put it like a full stop and move on and have it like a, this, the next part of my life. And that was the kind of reason for the book. And I also, there was other reasons that I wanted to get stuff out, like little lawyers and little uh, opinions that people may have had towards me and the band and stuff that I wanted to kind of clarify, you know. So there was all those things. But um, I'm not to lose me bleeding train. Don't worry about it, okay. okay. I'll ask you again. Uh, no, I'll leave my question in, right? But the question is, did it, uh, did it, did, did it kind of wound you, did it scar you, did it break your heart, having to go back? I mean, most of us kind of don't want to go, we, we, when we close sections of our lives, we don't want to have to go right back into the bowels of the experience to write about it, so yeah. it can't have been easy. Yeah, well, you know, I, I thought, you know, I might have, I've learned, you know, through, you know, programs that I've gone in, you know, to, to stay away from drugs and stuff, that sometimes when you talk about stuff and delve into stuff, it can help you, you know, uh, move on from those points. So I thought it may have like a, a, an exercising effect, that you know. So I was kind of hoping, you know, and thinking that would be the case. So I was saying it might be a little bit, you know, uh, hairy going in here, but I had no idea of how hard it would be, and it was hard. You know, I remember, you know, going to those areas, like even just now talking about that thing in Bray, like I'm, I had to go back there, you know, and especially yeah. when we were actually writing, writing the book, because I was sitting in my room at home, you know, and. I, I was kind of more comfortable and so I was, I was able to kind of really get be there kind of thing and I was getting into details and stuff and I remember going from a, a situation where you know it was a really happy situation with the band and then kind of saying, he was saying and then remember this other thing and he brought me to say the split in Waterford and going from the happy to, to that that moment and I remember my body physically going into this depression you know yeah. and even now you know I'm picking up the book and reading snippets of it, but I can't actually read it. It's very hard, you know. So, uh, but there is this. I mean, we didn't mention we, we you, you were fired by the band, but the band has got back together and produced some of its best music, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. and incredibly successful. You're selling out Ficker Street. You're doing the right. point. Uh, uh, so it's it's a. I mean, there's a, I, I love being able to say it, but there's a, there's a kind of happy ending. Yeah. We're not saying the kind of the, the, the life with the family and all that doesn't still have its tensions or whatever, that they didn't have to pay a price. Yeah. But in terms of what we're talking about, or started out talking about today, the music career, yeah. things are 
fairly zipping along going great. Yeah, I feel incredibly lucky, Joe, and that a lot of the people that I would have started using and stuff are dead and in jail and, you know, stuff like that. I've survived that thing, you know, and as you said, things are going really well with the band, you know, and I also, it, it also changed my priorities and my reasons for being in the band, you know, and I, I love doing what I do, you know, I earn a living doing what I do. Now, people say you should be here and if you hadn't done this, you'd have been there and you'd have been there. To me, I don't really care about all that. I've been famous and to me, it, it, sometimes it's not worth the crap that comes along with it, you know what I mean? I'm at a level now, I enjoy doing what I do and I have a nice comfortable living and the music we're writing, I feel I'm happy with, you know, we're all good mates again. So... I, it is a happy ending, but having said that, like sometimes I used to be afraid to say that in interviews because I thought people might think, well, I'll go out and have a little flirtation with drugs okay. and come back. You know, I am incredibly lucky to be to have survived where I survived. And it's only by the grace of God, I'm not getting into all mad religion stuff, but it's by the grace of God that I am here now because I shouldn't be. You know, the stuff I've done that I can't believe I've survived, you know, and there's even things I've done. I've, there's things I've done to get money and stuff that when I think about it, I, the shame I still feel about it, it's horrible, you know, horrible. I remember crawling under my granny's bed, just dying of Alzheimer's and robbing 40 pound out of our purse, things like that. It's When I think about it now, I'm, I'm, I'm mortified, yeah. it's, you know, the shame. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done stuff that I, you know, I, I still have to live with now and the scars are still there. And there's still, you know, there's still a lot of trust you know, I have to kind of re reestablish around the place, you know. Like, for example, you know, even just, it might have just been real, right? We were supposed to do this interview yesterday, right? She was genuine, absolutely, you know, no reason other than I was in Galway yesterday doing a gig and I didn't get back, right? Now, I know that, you know, I'm not saying you, but if that happens in nine times out of ten, ah, yeah, fuck, unreliable, dicky, probably out snorting the word, you know what I'm saying? That's where people go. Yeah. And you're, so if all that, all that the the um like there are repercussions and there are still residue, you know, things left and people have opinions of you. You know, it, uh, the publisher rang up uh, Janice, you know, and said, uh, I was warned about this, I knew he wouldn't turn up. Pat Kenny warned me, you know. All right, okay. So you've got all, right. all that. You I won't know. put that out there. That'll be bad yeah. for you, Christy. Okay, but Christy, uh, Christy I just want to, uh, sorry for cutting across there, but I think anybody who ever says to you, if you hadn't done this, this is where Aslan might be, I think the only answer you have for them is what you said to me, which is so many people I did stuff with are now dead. That's where I could be. Yeah, absolutely. So even where I am is where it's at. Yeah. And also, maybe, as you say, doing the book is has become a kind of emotional exorcism. And maybe maybe you'll just inch your way forward in a better way. In the I hope you do, and I wish you the yeah. best for it. Thanks very much. I hope so, you know. It was something that had to be done, you know. And, you know, we've had little fanzines and documentaries done about the band, which were there to promote the band more than anything else. And to me, this was to set the record straight and to move on from that point. You know, I'm on a new part of my life. I'm a grandfather now, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Kira had a child. OK, so listen, I want to end with the song Hang On, which I think kind of is a pretty appropriate number in the circumstances. And before I lead into it, I want to thank you, Christy, for being so for being my guest but also for being so honest on the show today and for writing the book thank you Joe. thanks for having us cool. nice. hi Joe Jackson here again thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson interviews podcast more can be heard as I said at joejacksoninterviewer.com